Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussion from around the globe. On the 30th of January, 1649, a large crowd gathered beneath a hastily erected scaffold at the Palace of Whitehall. At the stroke of 2pm, a nameless masked man delivered a single blow to sever the head of King Charles. 700 years after Alfred the Great sought to establish the Kingdom of England, the English monarchy was no more. A commoner and Puritan named Oliver Cromwell was now the country's de facto dictator. But as Cromwell's parliamentarians celebrated an end to the violent civil war, the king's 19-year-old son was determined to avenge his slaying and to restore the monarchy. A decade later, the young pretender would assume his father's throne. In this episode, I examine the life of King Charles II from his earliest days through his exile, his triumphant return and the remainder of his troubled reign. On the 29th of May, 1630, Charles was born as the second son of King Charles I and his French queen, Henrietta Maria. He enjoyed an affluent upbringing befitting of a king, his major challenge being convincing his tutors to let him pursue his interest in science. But beyond the leafy confines of the family estates, his father was sitting on a powder keg of religious and national conflicts. Three decades earlier, Elizabeth I of England had died without leaving a natural-born heir. After the bloody purges that followed her Catholic sister Mary's stint on the throne, both Elizabeth and Parliament had been keen to avoid further conflict by finding an eligible royal to succeed the Queen. James VI, already King of Scotland, was the ideal man for the job, or so it seemed. His great-grandmother was the sister of Elizabeth's father, Henry VIII. More importantly, he was a Protestant. The problem was that while Catholic versus Protestant violence had ravaged Britain since Henry VIII's Reformation, there was another conflict, a schism in Protestantism between Anglicans and Puritans. To the casual observer, the Anglicans with their bishops, communion, ornate churches, looked a lot like Catholics, minus the popes. The Puritans had no bishops, gathered in simple dwellings, and shunned vices such as music, dancing, and wine. James initially proposed tolerance and tried to keep a lid on the religious tensions, but over time he and his son Charles came down on the side of the Anglicans. Both the Catholics, and to an extent the Puritans, were marginalised, and in the case of the former, driven underground. Despite Charles I's embrace of Anglicanism, the Puritans felt he wasn't Protestant enough. Worse, they feared he was a Trojan horse, driving an eventual Catholic takeover. In fairness, there was a certain amount of legitimacy to their claims. His wife was a Catholic. His mother, the Lutheran Anne of Denmark, had converted to Catholicism late in life. The godfather of his son Charles 
was the powerful king of France, another Catholic. But the theological differences weren't his only concern. The parliament in England had grown ever more powerful since the time of King John and the Magna Carta. Charles, though, envied the total control Louis had in France. He didn't see the need for a parliament, and once disbanded it for a period of ten years. Parliamentarians feared a regime controlled by an absolute monarch, and many of the parliamentarians also happened to be Catholic-phobic Puritans. Conflict was inevitable, and after years of unrest, trouble culminated in a civil war that led to Charles's death. His son and namesake wasn't in the country when the execution occurred. Despite having joined his father in battle as a teen, his son and namesake had been shuffled off to exile in Europe as the curtain came down on Charles's reign. Charles Jr. had pleaded for his father's release, but the English had learned from bitter experience, going back to the time of Stephen and Matilda, that monarchs kept under lock and key have a nasty habit of resurfacing and reclaiming their dominions. The king had to die. Charles I wasn't the first monarch to be slain, but his predecessors such as Edward II and Richard III had quickly been replaced with more malleable royals. This time though, with the Puritans running Parliament, there was to be no new monarch. For the first time since the Dark Ages, the citizens of Britain were monarch free. Control of the country rested in the hands of politicians led by Oliver Cromwell. One of the ironies of this period of history is that when the Puritans set sail on the Mayflower, heading for the New World, their stated aim was to avoid religious persecution overseen by an all-powerful despot. Now that one of their own, Oliver Cromwell, was in power, he created exactly that. Monasteries and churches were destroyed. Religious dissenters, particularly in Ireland, were killed or driven underground. While Cromwell was establishing an austere, pious commonwealth in England, Charles, the young pretender in exile, was enjoying the kind of lifestyle the Puritans abhorred. While still a teenager, he fathered a child in The Hague with a Welsh woman named Lucy Walter. This helped forge his reputation as something of a hedonist. But despite his partying lifestyle, he still longed to reclaim his father's throne. But to complicate matters, there were in fact two thrones. The one in England and his family's ancestral throne in Scotland. The Scottish were mostly Presbyterians. They dispensed with bishops, saw no real value in a monarch, and like their English counterparts, they distrusted Catholic influence. Initially, Charles tried to reclaim the throne by force, sending his trusted ally Montrose to start a revolt in his father's homeland. But while the battle raged, he opened a second front, a direct line of communication with prominent secular and religious leaders in Scotland. Montrose was eventually killed in battle, while Charles secretly agreed terms with the Scots. He agreed to abandon attempts at building an Anglican-style national church in Scotland, and instead left the Presbyterians to mould their own church. But despite appearances, he was king in name only. The central role English monarchs played in Christendom were absent in Scotland. He was not the head of the church. He was effectively a figurehead to distinguish the Scots from the English, and for him, this would never be enough. A Neighbours from Hell scenario had arisen, with Charles enviously looking down at England from Scotland, and Cromwell 
eager to stamp his authorities across the northern border. Conflict was inevitable, and it broke out just months after Charles's return from exile. But divisions arose between the ranks of the Scots, and on the 3rd of September, 1651, Cromwell's army vanquished Charles's during the Battle of Worcester. Unlike his father, Charles escaped capture, hiding in an oak tree before disguising himself as a peasant and seeking refuge in a priest hole at the home of Thomas Whitgreave. While there, a Catholic priest, John Huddleston, tended to his wounds. Touched by the cleric's kindness, Charles reportedly vowed to end religious persecution if or when he became King of England. In the meantime, he fled back to Europe and tried to rally the support for an invasion in France, Spain and the Netherlands. Cromwell, meanwhile, adopted the title Lord Protector of England, Scotland and Ireland. It was a fancy title, but in layman's terms, he was a dictator. In theory, Charles had every chance to gain the support he needed in Europe. The King of France, Louis XIV, was his cousin. His mother, Henrietta Maria, had been living in exile in Paris since her husband's demise, and both she and her son relied on the French monarch for financial support. They also had powerful kin in Holland, where Charles's sister was the widow of the late Prince William, and mother of his son, and heir, the future William of Orange. Despite these connections, Charles was unable to rally the money or the troops he needed in France or Holland. The French king was strapped for cash, while the Dutch were more closely aligned politically and religiously with Cromwell. By 1654, any hopes of a family-backed coup were over when the French and Dutch governments formally aligned themselves with the English. In desperation, Charles made his way to Spain, a nation that had unsuccessfully attempted to instigate a regime change in England little over half a century earlier. In Philip IV of Spain, Charles found a willing ally, but in promising to help restore Charles to the throne, Philip demanded something in return. Charles's support in the war against France, which was essentially an offshoot of the continent-wide Thirty Years' War. Just a few years after living the high life on France's dime, Charles went to war with his cousin. As an exiled king, Charles had limited military resources. He put together a ragtag crew of a few thousand exiles and royalists. He had his younger brother James lead him into battle alongside their Spanish compadres. But once again, Charles's hopes went up in smoke. Half his men were killed in battle fighting French and English troops. His cousin and his English nemesis once again prevailed. It appeared that Charles's quest for the throne had finally run out of steam. But Charles's luck suddenly took a turn for the better. Just a few months after his forces were defeated at Dunkirk, his nemesis, Oliver Cromwell, died. Ironically, given the parliamentarian's violent overthrow of a dynastic monarchy, Cromwell's son Richard was chosen as a successor. His credentials were solely based upon being his father's son. But as a ruler, he was inept and unpopular. George Monk, the governor of Scotland, feared the country would descend into religiously fueled chaos under Richard, and he spearheaded the creation of a new parliament, equally comprised of Presbyterians and Royalist Anglicans. 
Having dabbled with secular despotism for a few years, the traditional idea of a monarchy didn't seem so bad anymore. Charles was invited back as king. He arrived in London on the 29th of May, his 30th birthday. While you're here, remember to check out my other episodes. Here's a sneak peek. In this episode, I explore the Christian community of Taizé. Seemingly nothing seems to happen, but then something happens. Reconciliation among all Christians, opening doors of hospitality and invitation, prayer as the center of life. They had been secretly formed as Christians because it wasn't allowed. So they from the underground church. Then when suddenly he, he disappeared, then we discovered that in fact he prepared the whole community to live also without him. His return was a little awkward to say the least for the various parliamentarians who had deposed and killed his father. So during negotiations for his return, Charles agreed to grant a general amnesty for most, though not all, of the regicidal rebels. Fifty individuals were less fortunate. Some of them were jailed, a select group subjected to being hung, drawn and quartered. Even in death, Charles I's assassins were not safe from his son's retribution. Cromwell's remains were removed from the ceremonial vault at Westminster Abbey. His corpse was decapitated and his body hung on display in Tyburn. His son Richard fled to Europe. Aside from promising forgiveness for his father's enemies, Charles also agreed to be tolerant with regard to religion. The Anglican Church would be at the centre of his reign, but Presbyterians would not be subject to harassment. Despite these vague assurances, with the help of an increasingly royalist parliament, Charles passed various measures to suppress the Puritans. Anyone seeking public office had to swear allegiance to the Anglican faith. The use of the Anglican prayer book was made compulsory, and religious gatherings of more than five people outside Anglican churches were banned. In essence, the Puritans had been made illegal. The swerve away from Puritan ideals extended far beyond religious meetings though. Theatres which had been shuttered under Cromwell were reopened. Salacious plays were performed, and most controversially of all, female actors were employed for the first time. London, especially among the aristocratic classes, became a bawdy venue for licentiousness and decadence. Charles had brought the Parisian social scene he enjoyed so much back to his home country. Like any king, Charles began to ponder his legacy and wanted to ensure he had a suitable heir to inherit the throne. An arrangement was made for him to marry Catherine of Branganza, a Portuguese princess. Like so many people in Charles's family, she was a Catholic. But through the marriage, England gained new territory in Africa and in the Indian Ocean. Plus, 
there weren't a lot of eligible Protestant princesses around, so the marriage was tolerated by Parliament as a political necessity. By all accounts, Charles was fond of his wife, but the marriage was anything but an intense love affair. For one thing, he already had five children from different mistresses by the time he tied the knot, and another of his illegitimate offspring was born just a month after his wedding. Barbara Villiers gave birth to one of Charles's kids in each of the first four years of his marriage. After that, she took a break, and he had a couple of children with the stage actress Nell Gwynne, before Barbara gave birth to her and King Charles's fifth acknowledged child, just weeks before the Duchess of Portsmouth gave birth to another of Charles's offspring. Suffice to say, conservative elements were scandalised by the king's sexual proclivity and his willingness to impregnate just about anyone, whether they be married or unmarried, wealthy or poor. But in all of this, the one woman who never had a child with Charles was his wife. Catherine had become pregnant at least three times, each ending in miscarriage. It said the strain of these tragedies affected her mindset, and for a time she had delusions about having given birth to imaginary twins. She was enraged when Charles installed one of his mistresses as a chambermaid, but she was in no position to resist the king's demands. She was a Catholic in a decidedly Protestant nation. She barely spoke English, and her own family were adamant the marriage would last to bolster Portuguese standing in Europe. So she was forced to endure the indignity of seeing her husband cavort with her closest aide. Catherine wasn't the only one who was dissatisfied with the marriage. Without a legitimate heir, parliamentarians worried that Charles would name his brother, the Catholic convert James, as his successor, and thus throw the nation into another religious civil war. Courtiers urged the king to divorce his wife, but Charles refused. He didn't love her as a husband ordinarily loves his wife but he did claim to have the utmost respect for Catherine. He thought it better for her to endure the indignity of his adultery than the disgrace of a divorce. Despite the fraught nature of their relationship, the king and Catherine put on a good show of solidarity in public. She enjoyed hosting extravagant masquerade parties, and they freely mingled with the libertines of London. But the goodwill gained for their partying soon evaporated in 1665, when the bubonic plague came to England. It wasn't the first time the disease had broken out in the country. Indeed, small outbreaks occurred about once a decade. But by the 1660s, London was ripe for a pandemic. There was no sanitation. Narrow streets were ever more crowded as the population grew. Barges brought goods and disease-carrying rats into the heart of the city. After a few cases in early 1665, thousands were dying daily by the autumn. The suffering subjects looked to their king for guidance, and he ran away. Mindful of his own mortality, Charles fled London and locked himself up in a house in Salisbury. There he remained until the following spring, by which time the case level had dropped, but so had his popularity. Coming up, Charles looks for redemption.
The Great Exhibition, the 19th century's equivalent of the Olympics and Disney World rolled into one. There had been trade fairs before, most notably in Paris, but nothing on a global scale. 60 years before the launch of the Titanic, in an era before cruise liners and airplanes, Henry Cole had a vision of an exhibition featuring the finest artisans, craftsmen and industrialists from around the world. But his vision evoked nightmares for his critics, who cited violent crime, terrorism and even a revolution as possible consequences of the event. In this episode, I explore the origins of the Great Exhibition, the key players, the challenges, how it's unfolded, and its enduring legacy. Charles was on thin ground, and Londoners had never been particularly receptive audience for kings. It was Londoners who drove Empress Matilda from the city hundreds of years earlier, thus sparking a long-running civil war. It was also Londoners who gathered with pitchforks to confront the boy king Richard II at the Tower of London. And it was Londoners who formed the bulwark of the Puritan anti-royalist movement that overthrew Charles's father. His cowardly son urgently needed to do some damage limitation if he was to hold on to his own crown. But once again, someone else's misfortune proved to be Charles's salvation. This time, the unfortunate was a man named Thomas Farriner who ran a bakery on Pudding Lane. A fire broke out in the premises and quickly incinerated it along with nearby homes. The close proximity of people that facilitated the spread of the plague also helped the fire as closely aligned ramshackle buildings enabled the raging inferno to leap from one structure to the next. Over five days, the fire left almost 100,000 people homeless and destroyed thousands of buildings. It was a catastrophe for everyone except Charles. Having learned the lessons of the plague debacle, Charles took the fire on directly. He went to the front lines and joined the volunteers carrying buckets of water to the firefighters. He also oversaw the dismantling of buildings to create fire breaks. On Thursday, the 6th of September, 1666, the inferno had been contained, and Charles was redefined as an all-action hero figure. Despite this moment of glory, there was a sting in the tail. Everyone wanted a scapegoat to blame for the fire, and they found a suitable candidate in a mentally ill Frenchman named Robert Hubert. He was a Catholic who confessed to starting the fire as an agent of the Pope. 
he was swiftly executed, despite serious misgivings about his state of mind. But Hubert's likely false confession gave new life to the simmering anti-Catholic sentiment, and a few years later, the Test Act was passed, which forbade Catholics from holding office. This was followed by a bizarre conspiracy shared by a man named Titus Oates. He claimed scores of Jesuit priests were planning to assassinate the king at the behest of the Pope. One of his acquaintances shared this information with the monarch while he was out for a stroll. Charles was sceptical, but agreed to hear the allegations. Pretty quickly, the plot thickened, and it soon encompassed all the prominent Catholic noblemen, and even the Queen. It was the English equivalent of the Salem Witch Trials. An accusation of treason against a Catholic was sufficient in many show trials to have an individual executed, and many of them were, including Catholic Archbishop Oliver Plunkett. But like witch hunters and conspiracy theorists, before and since, Titus Oates overplayed his hand. The scale of the alleged plot, lack of evidence, meant his claims became so outlandish that even ardent supporters turned on him. Oates was fined and discredited. Catholics could breathe easy, for a time at least. The final chapter of Charles's reign, like so much of his life, revolved around another religious conflict and the spectre of a Catholic restoration. His childless marriage meant that his Catholic brother James was next in line to the throne. Parliament were keen to prevent the younger Stuart from succeeding the ailing king. Members of Parliament proposed the Exclusion Bill, which would prevent any Catholic from assuming the throne. Calls were made to name his firstborn Protestant, though illegitimate son, as his heir. Ever stubborn, Charles immediately dissolved Parliament, hoping that a new Parliament would be more moderate. He was wrong. The new parliamentarians made the same demand, so he dismissed Parliament once more and became an absolute monarch. After decades of civil war, regicide and restoration, England was back at square one, with the country at the mercy of an all-powerful king. Charles had successfully kicked the can down the road, and on the 2nd of February, 1865, he died, leaving the question of succession and religious conflict to his survivors. On his deathbed, he was attended by Father John Huddleston, the Catholic priest who had given him sanctuary during the Civil War. Like his grandmother and brother before him, Charles converted to Catholicism with his last breath. His demise left a divided nation on the verge of another civil war. He had led a life of excess, been accused of cowardice, been praised for bravery, and forged and broken alliances with every major power in Europe. He'd inherited a devastated nation, and he died leaving a powder keg of problems ready to explode. But despite it all, rightly or wrongly, Charles II was, and remains, one of England's most popular monarchs. Well, stone the flaming crows, it's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast. 
and follow Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com.